Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm your host, Trina Sideros, and I lead PwC's Health Research Institute. Before I start in, I want to extend a big thank you to my co-host, Ben Isger, who led us through more than 40 episodes. Ben and I launched this podcast about a year ago, and his insight and experience has been invaluable. In the coming weeks, I'll be joined by a new co-host, so listen for that. Today, I'm here with Claudia Douglas, a PwC principal and one of the industry's experts on telehealth and remote care. Welcome to the podcast, Claudia. Great to be here, Trina. So, Claudia, one of the big changes that came out of the pandemic was millions of Americans tried telehealth for the first time, and millions of clinicians did too. At HRI, we surveyed Americans during the pandemic and found that people, by and large, really liked their telehealth experience. I think the numbers were something like 9 in 10 people that we surveyed who had had at least one telehealth visit told us they'd be up for another one. So that's pretty incredible, pretty, pretty high satisfaction, it looks like. So here we are, we're a year out from the lockdowns in the spring of last year, and life is feeling like normal in many parts of the country or close to normal. And so, Claudia, where are we at as a nation with telehealth right now? I would say it's an exciting time. As you said, we're about 15 months since a lot of this really exploded. We're seeing a lot of exciting things in primary care and behavioral health, as well as even in specialties like neurology, cardiology, as far as pre and post visit. I actually just had a virtual health visit today with my GYN. It was not my annual, but it was a check-in on some meds and it went smoothly. It was wonderful. And I didn't have to drive there. She works in her office. She also does some things at home on other days where she'll just have a full virtual day. So we're in a position where I think people are really comfortable with it. I'm hearing a lot from providers hoping that we continue to have a cross-state line for licensure. And a lot are doing some very innovative things with payment and not just waiting to see if payment will come, but how do they reconfigure their operating model or their partnerships to make sure that even if payment changes, that they're in a position to continue to provide this. So it sounds like we've got lots of us way more comfortable with telehealth. We've got questions around the regulatory front and how the regulations might catch up with where we all are. And then questions about reimbursement and how will the payment kind of catch up with where people want to be, both the clinicians and the consumers. And I think one other aspect of this is that people really think about telehealth in terms of video visits and like maybe texting with their clinician or maybe messaging. But there's a lot more to it too, right? It's not just video visits. Really, organizations are thinking about remote care in different ways. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. What beyond the video visit are you hearing about and seeing? So we are seeing a lot of remote patient monitoring being pulled in. So let's say, for example, my mother had CHF. We're seeing a lot of wonderful things come down the pike about watching people's weight and feeding that into the chart, their pulse ox, their blood pressure. And how do we, for that type of patient, how do we have the whole view and make sure that we're watching these signals? We don't want too many alerts, right? We get alert fatigue in healthcare. So how do we have the right number of signals? Let's say that my pulse ox is dropping below 90 on a regular basis and my blood pressure is higher. And by the way, my weight just went up by five pounds this week. How do we get those things so that we're catching things before we end up with an ER admission 
or some kind of exacerbation where we're calling an ambulance? How do we get those signals sooner? So maybe we need more torsamide, kind of the fluid pill, right? Maybe we need some laser, these type of things that will keep people out of the hospital and keep them healthier. We're also seeing more things around lab, mobile lab. So we don't have to drive in and get a blood test either at the office, at the hospital, lab core, et cetera. How do we get those more out where people are? And even imaging, the days of the mobile van going around or continuing to go on. And how do we keep things where people are versus having people drive or have to travel for things? So it sounds like with all this, you need a lot of technology to make it happen. So if you're monitoring someone's pulse ox and you're monitoring someone's blood pressure, and then you're able to get that information to the provider to help that person make a decision about how to help that person at home, there needs to be a lot of tools to help that happen. Are we seeing these tools spread more and more into people's homes? Is that one of the things that we're seeing kind of come out of the pandemic or was this happening enormously before the pandemic as well? I would say in the past, it was episodic. And I also believe there are a lot more vendors popping up in this space that we talk with, but they were there. But because of payment and other barriers in the system, it was there, but it's much more broadly accepted now. And there continue to be more and more vendors entering this space or more of approaching us to how do you get more connected, showing things they're doing. There are some more use cases around ROI that are great. But I will tell you, I have an RPM kit. So as part of this, my local provider, through their MyChart app and other communication mechanisms and email and what have you, had an opportunity to buy a kit that would allow me to stay at home. And mostly we're seeing a lot with parents and their children. And so I actually talked to the head of their virtual house program last week. He also happens to be a friend. And we were chatting and he said that adoption of this kit has been immense in the past 6 to 12 months. And in fact, they got a grant to provide these kits for people that can't afford them as well, that they might be getting more ER admissions from or what have you. So I personally purchased it and I started to set it up. He encouraged me to stay with that because once it's set up, he said, it's amazing, but it's something you don't want to do at night when your kid has a 2 a.m. fever and you need to get their ears checked, right? So you want to have it all set up beforehand. But he said, it's amazing. There's a ability to check ears, like a stethoscope function, all these things that you would need. He said, it works great, but you have to have it all set up and you have to know as the end user how to use it. Claudia, tell me what it looks like. Are we talking about sort of like a, I'm envisioning a Swiss army knife, but I'm thinking maybe it's probably more (laughs) smartphone based. Can you tell me what it looks like? Yes, absolutely. So it has a little piece that I would say It's not as big as your smartphone. It's a little bit thicker. It's about half the size of your smartphone. I guess I would say in length. And then the width is similar. And then it has more depth to it. And you do have an app on your phone for this function. And then you also use, it's a little bigger than the necklace, but you would put it on your chest to listen for the stethoscope. It obviously has the piece that you would think it looks like something that would go in your ear, right? And so it does a whole host of functions. And he told me recently that there's an attachment now you can monitor blood pressure. It'll interface with whatever watch you might have that might get diagnostics. So it's all connected. And he's telling me that it's amazing what you can do with it. He did say there is the hurdle. You have to work with someone and get it set up right. It takes about an hour. But then once it's set up right, you can add all these attachments. And it's really cool. 
wow, I remember a few years ago, there was a competition that was set up to have one of these created that sort of challenged any team in the globe to come up with. I think they likened it to a Star Trek tricorder or something like that, or one of those sort of diagnostic devices that could figure out what was wrong with someone just by sort of passing it over someone. And we know that that's not possible, but this sounds very close to it where you have a lot of different functions that you can do and then it's connected to an app and all that information can go to your provider and, and have decisions made there. One piece that I think is also important is just the connection that Wi-Fi or 5G connection, the internet connection. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, about is that system, that infrastructure ready for this? So even with our podcast we're doing right now, it's important, right, to have a good connection. I would say that helps if you have a really good wireless network where you are. We are seeing boosters and whether they're even in inpatient facilities or one of the things I hope that we see a lot more are these assisted living facilities where we do have people that we know there's a greater incidence of diabetes, there's a greater incidence of congestive heart failure and other issues like even oncology. And so how do you make sure that they're wired and they have the right boosters, people in rural environments, and how do we keep them connected? But I will say the heart and lung sounds that come out of this, the ear exams, even looking at this piece of this equipment can look in your throat and tell you, the doctor can say, oh, you have strep throat. This looks like you have a sore throat. I can see it's red or you have white bumps. It's just amazing. So I would say for the normal video visit, yes. In fact, people do this, a video visit on their mobile phone. It's just like doing FaceTime. When you start pulling in some of the RPM, that can be a bigger challenge. And so you want to be on a network, whether it's 4 or 5G. At this point, we're seeing that work because 5G isn't as saturated as 4G. You you have 5G in certain areas, but not all. But actually, we're seeing a lot being published about the benefits of 5G as that rolls out. People use boosters in inpatient facilities. There are boosters. Assisted livings could look at this. Other places, maybe employers, right? We also watch this globally. So it's really important, especially big countries like Saudi Arabia, India, where you need to be connected in rural areas, even our own country, right, is really important. And especially as we're seeing hospital closures in rural areas, we really want to make sure we're connected in those places so that people don't have to travel long ways to see a provider. Of course, I am absolutely not saying that this replaces all of care, right? We're seeing as far as percentages, about 60% of behavioral health is virtual for many reasons, as you could imagine. Primary care can be anywhere from 20 to 50%. It depends on the specialty, but definitely there are opportunities to stay better connected patients. One of the things, Trina, I think is really important to think about. We have clients that had a 50% no-show rate, especially for some of our social determinants of health groups where we're looking at health equity, and they went to zero because People didn't have to drive in or they didn't have to catch a bus or a train. They could connect in on their phone and even talk on the phone with the payment relaxation. There are phone visits. Now, we want to get more to virtual for payment reasons, for connectivity, being able to see. A lot of times you can improve engagement if you can see each other. But phone is better than nothing, right? So as we do phone, we do video, we pull in the RPM. There's so much opportunity to grow in this space. And I know there's a lot of excitement, like you said, both on the consumer, the provider side. So we're hoping that it's here to stay. It probably won't be at the levels it was when we were in lockdown, but there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm and energy around this. 
Yeah, I think back in 2014, we surveyed consumers and we asked them all these hypothetical situations and whether they would be open to doing it. And a lot of them were things like, would you be willing to have a strep test at home? Would you be willing to have a doctor check your child's ears using remote patient monitoring, like using a remote or a virtual or digital otoscope and all of these different things. And this back then, these were hypotheticals. These were situations that were not reality. And what you're describing is actually the reality is here, you know, not that many years later. And so I think that's pretty amazing to see. And also that consumers back then were really eager for it. There were huge percentages of consumers that wanted this and were open to it and saw that it would be convenient and make their lives easier. And they wanted this. And now I think it's quite striking that we're kind of in this era where it's actually becoming a reality. So just sort of an amazing, not that long span of time to have that happen. So here's a final question, Claudia, that we're asking all of our guests this season. And it's about fast forwarding to the future. So here's the question. What process, technology, or innovation that we know about today will have the greatest impact on the health system of tomorrow? So what do you think? I would say a few things. Obviously, RPM evolving. Payment has to be there. Whether you make your own payment, you find a way to make your own payment. You know, we're seeing a lot of direct to employer, a lot of health plans, our government looking at this very closely. I would say making sure that the consumer is engaged. And I'll tell you why. For me, here I am working in this space and I'm passionate about it. And I partially bought this RPM kit because I'm in this space. I wanted to see how it worked. We're all busy and we want everything immediately. I sat down on a Saturday afternoon for about 15 minutes and tried to set it up. And when I couldn't get it done in that time frame, I stopped. We have to realize it's just like anything, losing weight, achieving a goal, especially if it's an important goal, it might not be that easy to do. So making sure that we stick with it and we help consumers, we message and say, this might take an hour, but it will save you potentially 12 in the next few years or something like that. You know, your commute time, you're waiting in the waiting room time. So it's that investment and making sure that if it's not immediately easy, that we stick with it. I cannot agree more that educating the consumer and sort of anticipating questions and helping them get to where they want to be ultimately, because the desire is there, is so, so important for this next step. Otherwise, people might just get frustrated and decide this isn't worth it. So I completely agree, Claudia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, sure. Trina, it was my pleasure. It's great to always be with you. And thank you all for your time. Thank you. Thank you. So for more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.